The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 to 12. I'm reading from the New International Version. Please follow me in your Bibles or on the PowerPoint behind me. 2 Samuel 15, 1 to 12. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of a road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. But Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would say, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that they received justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messages throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had invited They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. I thought I'd lost things. I was going to have to wear glasses. This is really just the Bible in big print, so that I don't have to wear glasses. I can see it in front of me. That's why those are there. there my, my name's David. My warm welcome to you as well. It's really good to have everybody here. Just a couple of announcements before we look into the passage in Scripture. This afternoon at 2 o'clock, if you're interested, we have an information afternoon. For those who maybe are new to the church, want to ask a few questions, find out what the ministries are, think about some of the vision and purpose of the church. Um, Think about a bit of the structure. If you've got any questions you want to ask about the church, we'll be meeting in the conference room at 2 o'clock. There's a bit of an afternoon tea and a a presentation and some time for some questions. If you're interested in that, please come to that. Next Sunday lunchtime, if you're new to the church, been here in the last couple of months, and we're having a barbecue um, welcome lunch down in Hope House. It's across the car park, half past 12. So plan to be there. It'd be really good to catch up with everybody and get to meet a few new people and and just to say welcome and it's really good. Um, There are two other announcements that I have. Uh, We're beginning an Alpha course again in in, um, April. So on Tuesdays in April, I think it's starting on the 16th, 
um, we'll be doing a 10-week Alpha course. For those who are interested, an Alpha course is, an, I suppose, an outline of the Christian faith in a way that isn't there to, to bring argument, isn't there to um, bring conflict, but it's just a presentation, this is what Christians think, to allow people to understand what the Christian faith is all about. So if you have any friends who maybe don't understand the Christian faith, feel free to invite them along into an atmosphere. We share a meal together and they'll be able to hear this is what Christians believe. Um, or maybe you are a follower of Christ and it's a little bit confusing sometimes to put the whole thing together. What exactly is all that Christians believe? Or how do I explain it in a, in a fairly straightforward, simple way to other people? Then feel free to come along and join with us. Um, there'll be uh, brochures out next week but already be praying about who you might invite along to the Alpha course. There's also going to be an Alpha course on the Wednesday, but that will be during the day for those who can't make an evening. Right? So some people who prefer to come during the day. They begin that second week of April. The second announcement is that there's going to be a marriage course starting in May, Wednesday evenings in May. Uh, this is a course designed for um, those people who are already married or maybe who are living together to help them to fine-tune their marriage, to uh, just have that opportunity to connect with their husband, wife, spouse afresh. Uh, so your marriage doesn't have to be on the rocks to come. All right? you, really good marriages, if you could come just to, to sort of touch up and highlight and remind yourselves of, of what it means to be married. They happen um, on Wednesday nights. We share a meal together, romantic. Romantic, I'm talking little table, tablecloth, um, candles, soft music. Share a meal together. And then we watch a DVD and have opportunity to discuss things that are brought up and just discuss it with your spouse. You don't have to share anything out in public. You just have to share it with your wife or your husband. What happened at the last marriage course is people found that that was a great opportunity. For some couples, it was the only opportunity in a week that they had to talk. A number of couples said, can we come to the next one? I want to talk to my husband again. Or I want to talk to my wife again. So feel free. There's limited room. We probably only have room for about 30 couples, 25 couples uh, for that course. It's a seven-week course. So that begins in um, May. At the same time as that, we're going to be having a marriage preparation course. So for those who are not yet married but are planning to get married or engaged, um, we will be having that running. It's only about a five-week course, but it's also beginning the first Wednesday in May. So if you're in either of those, there'll be brochures available next week for those. Right? So it's just an advanced an announcement for you. We come now to have a look at these chapters of Scripture, so let's just pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now as we look at this large passage of scripture that you might help us to understand what it is that you are saying to us what it is that you're communicating that we might be encouraged in our faith and challenged in our walk with you Father we ask these things in Jesus name Amen Six chapters of scripture in one sermon I only got halfway through the first chapter in the 830 service One of the problems is that it's really this description of rebellion in a land and how this rebellion plays its way out. So if you like, it's like the rebellion in Syria or in Egypt. From its beginnings through to its conclusion, it's a statement of history. 
And the answer is, how do you get something from that that you can learn? When all the details are all in there, what's, what's the message of all of that? I mean, what's the message of the Second World War? There's just so many things that happen in telling the story of what happened in the Second World War. How do you get the message of all of it? And that's been some of my confusion over the week. One of the things that we often do when we have such a sort of history lesson, and let's face it, if you remember the reading that we just had that Kathy shared with us, that's just politics, right? Absalom was just being political. He was kissing babies and shaking hands and saying, I'm going to be a better leader than that leader is. He's like the leader of the opposition here. He's just going around not making a comment on Queensland or federal politics, just telling it. But anyone in opposition says, I could do a better job. If I run this, health will work, is basically what he's saying. If I did this, I wouldn't have to privatise anything. Absalom does that, and at the end he gets the people on his side, and we have this rebellion that takes place over the next couple of chapters. And one of the things that we often do when we have that sort of thing in Scripture is we tend to moralise a little bit. We take something that comes out of the story and we can learn something from it. So, for example, towards the end of these chapters, Absalom dies. He is fleeing on his mule and he's going through a forest and he gets caught in a tree. Now, the Hebrew says he got caught, his head got caught, but all the pictures when I was growing up because he had a guy who had long hair. That got caught in the tree and it hung him up there. So the story I got told at Sunday school was this is a good reason why men don't have long hair. (laughs) Just look, there's a story and from that you can learn this. And we tend to do that all over the place. We make good morals out of it. And there will be lots of examples through here where you can say, yeah, that's something I can learn about the way the world works. And all of those things are true. Well, many of those things are true. This is how the world seems to work because this is like a reality show. We can see that the way it's happened then is the way it happens now. But the question is, is that why this has been given to us? Is this put in, in the scriptures for that reason? And I'd like to say that I'm going to go through the story in a minute as, as briefly as I can just so you get some of the 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 history and some of the intrigue that's going on. But I'd just like to say at the beginning that God has a purpose for having this recorded in Scripture. He wants us to understand something from the big picture here. See, when we talked about last week, David has sinned. He slept with Bathsheba. He shouldn't have. He, He had contempt for the law of God and he sinned. And that sin, even though he has confessed his sin, he said he's He's sorry and he has been repentant. He's changed his ways. The consequences of that have been carried out throughout his life. His sons have been killed, his daughters have been raped and there's been all sorts of murder and intrigue in his own family. But the consequences keep going on so that now we have rebellion in the nation and the nation is torn apart as a consequence of David's actions. And the big picture of all of these chapters, we mentioned this last week, is that the people in the future are saying God made a promise to David. 
And now we see our nation torn apart, not from this rebellion, but a rebellion that's a little bit later on. And they say, is God's promise still true? And what we have in this one, it's actually two rebellions in these chapters, but this main rebellion of Absalom, David's son, who tries to tear the kingdom away from him, is having a look at at the different attitudes between these two rulers and their politics. And in particular, I just want to look at David's. And to notice as we go through that David held on to God's promise to him even though his circumstances didn't seem to match God's promise. He still trusted God even though everything he saw seemed to be going down the toilet. Am I allowed to say that? I think so. He, he, couldn't, he tried to make sense of the world that was coming up to him and say, where is God in this? But more than that, he was saying, God has said this will come true. I don't see it working out. But I'll hold on to this faithfully. I'll still make choices. I'll still go through the difficulties, not necessarily understanding what God's doing, but I will hold on to what God has promised me. Now we'll look at some application of that a little bit towards the end of, 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 the, of the message. But think through, just to begin with, some of the promises that God has made to us as his children. He promises that he will bless us. He promises he will take care of us. He promises that he will look after those that we love. He promises that he will put his spirit within us and guide us into all truth. He promises us that he will never let go of us. He will change us to be more like him. And yet when we sometimes go through all of the circumstances of life, we don't see that working out the way we expect it to work out. Or we'll do something that seems to send it off track and we wonder whether or not God can ever bring it back to achieve his purposes. What we read in these chapters from David's life is that though his life seemed to fall completely apart, God brought about his covenant with David, his promise with David anyway. And David's responsibility was to trust in God through that circumstance. Now, very quickly now, the history. Remember from the reading, Absalom has stolen the hearts of the people. A democratic rebellion took place. The people's voice was, we don't want David anymore. If I was going to moralise, it would be that democracy isn't always right. But we're not going to moralise. But it's something to think about. The people wanted someone different. We don't like this guy anymore. David, on the other hand, still had his army behind him. So what we basically had is a popular movement under Absalom fighting against the regime, if you like, of David. He had his military still behind him and he had the priesthood still recognising that God had said he was the king. And this is what the battle is going to happen. In verse 13 of chapter 15, a messenger comes to David and says, the people are rebelling. They want Absalom's king. He's stolen their heart. And the rest of the chapter tells of David's leaving Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. 
we must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And the king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. Often when I've read that in the past, I've kind of had this idea that David was a bit of a wimp. He just, ooh, there's that some, and off he went. I'm scared. But when you, when you actually think through this in terms of political intrigue, so when you're reading this, understand this is politics in action. This is strategy. David here has a choice. That's when the officials say to him, we'll do whatever you choose to do. He had some choices that he had to make. This is only one of the occasions in Scripture, there are a few, but this is one of the main ones where actually people make choices. Often people do things one way or another, they choose there, but the Scripture doesn't call it a choice. The one who decides to do one thing or another in Scripture is usually God. God decides and what he decides comes about. But here it's really focusing on that David had a choice and he was actually in some ways in control of this situation. He could stay in Jerusalem, for those of you who are military strategists, and I think most of your military strategy comes on LOL, uh, which is League of Legends for those who are gamers. Right? Um, I know these things because I have some LOL lovers in my house. Um, but you can stay within Jerusalem, which is a fortified city, and you've got your army, but you've also got people. And the heart of the people is turned to Absalom. And Absalom is coming. He's in a defensible position, but there's a big group of people who are coming and it's going to be hard for him because he's surrounded by people and he's not sure where their heart is. And the outcome, as far as he sees it, is that he'll be defeated because of the rebellion within the city and lots of people will die. And he doesn't want that to happen. So he decides, I'm going to leave. I'll go out to the wilderness where I kind of know what's going on and I'll take with me those people who are favourable to me. I'll take the people I can trust with me and I've got the army. So I'm going to be much safer going elsewhere. And his household comes with him. And here we have the first part to, to show that David still recognised that God wanted had appointed him as king and was going to keep his promises. In verse 16, the king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. He, He left ten of his wives, in inverted commas, to look after the household. The implication is I'm coming back. I will return to this place. I'm not running with my tail between my legs. I'm making a strategic move and I'll be back. And we find as we go through the story that his rationale is, God has promised me that this is where I'll be and I haven't heard anything different yet. Only when I hear something different will I change, will I realise that God has abandoned his promise. But until then I I plan to come back. And as he's leaving, there's this guy called Itai the Gittite. What a name. Um... And as he's walking out, and Ittai has 600 people with him. And as you read the story, you find out these are all Philistines. They're from Gath. And it never really made much sense why they would come and work for days. But then if you think of the times that were back then, who's the best people to have as your bodyguards? People you pay to do it, who aren't doing it out of loyalty one way or another. So that often what used to happen in those days, the king would hire mercenaries to guard them, strong mercenaries to guard them. And so it seems that as David's leaving, he's got all these mercenaries on the side. 
but he wants to make sure that they're on his side. So he says to them, you've got a choice here. You can come with me, we're going off into the wilderness, we're going to, yes, we're going to fight, but you can come with me, but look, I realise that you're new here. You've just arrived. So if you want, you can stay with Absalom. The guy who's going to be proclaimed king here. You can fight for him or you can fight for me. Make your choice up because I know that you don't have loyalty to me necessarily. And if I says, no, I want to go with you. I'll stay with you. I will be faithful, if you like, to the agreement that we've got. So Dave moves out now with this loyal band of people behind him. He then comes across, as he's heading out, the priests. The priests have got the Ark of the Covenant. They've learned now not to put it on a cart. They're carrying it. And Zadok, the priest, is making his way out. And Dave turns to him and says, look, thank you for your support. I appreciate that. And here's the second instance of of David acknowledging that God keeps his promise. He says, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. So what does he say to Zadok? He says, look, the ark belongs in Jerusalem. belongs in the house of God. God's promised me that I'm, I'm the king. He's, he's promised to keep his covenant with me. He's promised not to take the kingdom away from me. And I will, I will trust him. He goes on to say to Zadok, look, you're the priest. Have you heard anything different? You're a seer. Have you heard anything different? Zadok says, I haven't heard anything different. So Zadok says, in that case, I'll trust that I will come back to this place. Even though everything I see in terms of this rebellion seems to point towards you're not going to be king anymore, I will trust in God. And unless he changes his mind, then I will be faithful to his promise. David keeps going out. comes up to the Mount of Olives. For those of you who like analogy, if you read this and you remember the New Testament, a lot of preachers compare David's leaving of Jerusalem under with rebellion and we get further on things get thrown at him he gets things going up to the Mount of Olives and then returning in victory to be a picture of Christ alright that's just interesting I don't think that's what it's talking about um, but if you're interested in those sorts of things there you go that's a little bit of an aside so as he comes up to the top people say to him look Ahithophel one of your counsellors has gone with Absalom. And David's response is, Lord, don't let his counsel be good counsel. Turn it into foolishness. He makes a prayer. He's heard that one of his really smart guys is now on Absalom's side. And then he comes across one of his mates. He's just made this prayer, Lord, turn his counsel away. And then he sees one of his good mates here. And his friend's name is Hushai. Dave says to Hushai, look, can you head back and pretend to be Absalom's friend? And then when Ahithophel, yeah, him, when he gives counsel, can you kind of, can you play the advocate? Can you make him look like a real idiot? Can you kind of turn it around? And so whilst he is trusting in the Lord, he's still making decisions 
as to how it is that he's going to achieve that which he thinks is supposed to be achieved. The danger of taking something like that is to moralise it. I'm doing this rather to, as you read scripture to teach you not to do that because it's not always the right thing to do, is it? Sometimes it's the right thing to do is to, to ask God's help and then to not just try and work it out yourself. But what David does is he, put, he asks God's help and then he puts in place a plan to try and mix things up a bit for Absalom. But that's what he does politically. He keeps walking and he sees Zeba. Zeba is Mephibosheth's steward, someone who is supposed to be on David's side. And we talked about Zeba a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but basically what happens with Zeba is Zeba says, look, Mephibosheth's on Absalom's side, but I'm on your side and I've got all these goodies for you. And David says, well, bless you, come with me and I'm going to reward you for being on my side. He's surrounding himself with a number of loyal people who can help him to reclaim the throne. He then comes across this guy called Shimei. And as he's placing a town, this is chapter uh, 16, verse 5, as David approaches Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Jerah, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. And you read a little bit further on, he pelts him with poop. Basically, as this guy, David's walking past, one of the towns he walks past, someone who is his enemy, who was on Saul's side, stands on the edge of a cliff and David's walking past with all of his army and he starts chucking stones and saying, eh, you're going to get your own. God's going God's to get you for all the things you did to my mate Saul. You're going to go down. Well, one of David's friends, warriors, excuse me, this is down in verse 9, why are you going to let this dead dog curse you? If you want, I'll go cut his head off and bring it back to you. I'm happy to do that. And David says, I think we have a different understanding of what's going on. This is in verse 10. He says, what's this got to do with you? If he's cursing because the Lord told him to curse, how can you say why is he doing this? And David said, look, Absalom is trying to kill me. Let this guy alone. Maybe he's saying what God wants him to say. And if not, then the Lord will actually return to me a blessing instead of cursing. Again, it's a picture of this trusting in God regardless. You have this circumstance happening in David's life which seems contrary to what God has promised. This guy's coming out and saying, you're going to die, Dave. And Dave, instead of just reacting to that, takes, I think, what is a righteous attitude. And he says, I need to learn. Is God talking to me in this circumstance? Is God wanting to say to me that no, he has turned his back on me? When we go through those difficult circumstances which seem contrary to the way we think that God acts, one of the things we need to do is what Dave does. He says, I trust in God. And I know that this is what God has said. Now I'm going to evaluate the circumstance and say, is God telling me something different? Is he telling me something that needs to change my attitude and my heart? In other words, even in those contrary circumstances, we need to say, what is God saying here? Now sometimes God is saying stuff. 
And we need to learn to listen to that. That's what David says. Maybe he's giving this from God and I need to hear this. But sometimes nothing's being said. Sometimes he's just an ordinary guy that needs to have his head cut off. Right? But of course he didn't cut his head off. And so they go and they cross over the Jordan River and they take a rest for a minute. That's the first part of this story. Dave has been trusting in God but still arranging his things. And then Absalom arrives in Israel and he finds the gates are open. He can just walk right in. He's into, the, into his dad's palace. And he's got Ahithophel with him. Ahithophel, who is his dad's counsellor. And he says, what do I do? What's the best course of action? Now Ahithophel, he's a smart guy. He knows that if Absalom doesn't go full out to win this war, he's going to lose because Dave's got the army. All he has is a lot of people who really aren't trained in battle. So he knows that Dave has to show everybody he's committed to his course of action and get in there and kill Dave. So he says two things. Firstly, he says, well, look, your dad left behind some of his wives. Go and sleep with them to say, I'm the new king. Now, that seems pretty gross to us, and I think it is. But he, he does that. And pretty much he says to everybody, I have made a statement here, I can't go back anymore. I can't, if, if the war doesn't seem to go my way, I can't turn to David and say, oh, it was all a mistake, you're such a April Fool. <laughs> I, I can't do that because I've done something which puts me into the sort of place where I can't get out of it. I have slept with my dad's wife. I, I've, I've made a very strong statement, I am now the king. And he thinks that's a great idea and he goes and does that. And then Ahithophel says, look, I'll take 12,000 men. Dave doesn't have that many. I'll take 12,000 of your people while he's really tired just across the Jordan and we'll go attack them. They're very tired. They're very weary. They're going to be afraid. We'll just kill David. We might have to kill a few others, but we're going to try and just kill him, get him out of the picture, and then everybody will come back to you. They'll recognise there is nobody else. And everybody says, absence is, that's a great idea. I think that's fantastic. And then he turns to Dave's mate, Hushai, and he says, what do you reckon about this? Do you think this is a good idea? And Hushai goes, well, nah, not really. You know, it sounds good, but I don't think so. He says, you know, your dad's a pretty tough dude. He's, he's a warrior. And you go attacking him right now when he's angry, and he's just going to fight back. He's going to be too hard to beat. He's going to be tough. He's going to be angry. And your guys, they're going to go there. They're not really warriors. And your dad's going to come out like a bear fighting for his cubs. And you're going to lose. You might lose the whole thing, but you'll lose enough that everyone's going to doubt whether you're really, you know, you're tough enough to do the job. What I think you need to do, and you really don't want to hit the fellow to go and do your job for you. You've got to do it yourself. What I think you need to do is wait. 12,000 is not quite enough. Wait till you build your army up to more than you can possibly count. Then go get Dave. And don't just kill him, the whole rebellion. Surround them and wipe them out. That's what you need to do. Napton says, I, I like it. That's a great idea. I get to be the one that destroys everything and everything's done and dusted. I like that idea. We're going to do that instead. 
Now, Ahithophel, he understands that because Absalom isn't going to do that, he's lost his advantage. This is the politics playing out. This is strategy. He's lost the advantage. And so he says, well, look, uh, you're not going to listen to me. I'm out of here. He goes back to his hometown. He puts everything in order and he kills himself. Why? Because he realised they've lost. They realise at this stage that because they haven't gone and killed David when they could kill him, everything's done. Now, for the rest of the next couple of chapters, we just see the working out of this. David takes some time, surrounds himself with an army, three-pronged army with three leaders, all of them warriors. And when they finally get attacked by the people that Absalom's amassed, David now does what Absalom should have done. He sends in his fighters just to get Absalom, to take him out. And they have this big fight in a forest and it says that God actually helps out in this fight. The forest itself destroys more of the opposing force than does David's men. But David eventually, they have this battle, 20,000 people are killed, but David's army wins through. You can understand that. Well-armed, military force against a popular uprising and David wins but he says to all of his leaders before they go he says look when you catch up with Absalom don't hurt my boy take him you know but bring him back safely don't hurt my boy and this is the story where Absalom realising that he's lost, pops on his mule and runs away with his hair flowing in the wind. That's why you got to tie it in a ponytail. He would have been safe if he did. But no, goes through the trees, caught up in his neck and one of the soldiers finds him hanging from the tree. Not dead yet, just caught there. And he goes back to Joab, the leader, one of David's leaders, and says, found him, we'll take him back to Dave now. And Joab says, did you kill him? And the soldier says, no, I didn't kill him. Dave said, look after my boy. And Job says, don't be stupid. Kill him. And the guy says, I, I can't kill him. David said not to. So Job says, well, I will then. And goes and kills the guy. Kills Absalom. Throws him in a pit. Covers him with stones. That's the story. Job recognises the fact that the biggest problem for David wasn't the army. The biggest problem for David was Absalom. Absalom needs to be taken out of the picture. This is the second part of this story. It flows on now in the next couple of chapters. Not only does David have to trust in God to fulfil his promises, but he finds himself in a position that to do that, he needs to put aside something that he loves. Now, in this case, it's a terrible story because it means putting aside his son. He's allowed to mourn his son, but he's supposed to put that aside because that's the cause of the rebellion. We find that David really struggles to do that. Even when he finds out Absalom is dead, instead of welcoming back his victorious army who's going to lead him into the kingdom again, he just goes into his house and starts crying, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. You can understand that his son just died. But he's so focusing on this thing, this person who has brought him undone because he loves it, that he's not prepared to recognise all that the others have done to fulfil God's promises for him. Jesus says something similar. He says, you need to love me more than them. He says, your love for me 
has got to be such that when you compare it with your love for your family, it's as if you hate your family. He's not saying you have to hate your family. He's saying you need to love me more. And I think the picture for us is what Dave struggled to learn until Job showed it to him was that to honour the right thing, sometimes we have to put aside the things we like that are wrong. I talk to people who are caught up in stuff like pornography. They struggle with it. I remember talking to one person a couple of months ago and every time they got on the computer to do their work or to play games or whatever it was, they would always find there's this little period of a window where they kind of got sucked into looking at pornography and they say, I don't know how to stop. I said, well, it's not that hard, really. You just don't use your computer. And they said, what do you mean don't use my computer? I, I said, well, don't turn it on. If you don't turn it on, you're not going to have the problems in the first place. And they're like, well, I, I, I like my computer. I need my computer. I use my computer. What do you mean don't turn it on? I said, well, there are other ways to do it, but the easiest way is not to turn the silly thing on. But no, I can't do that. There has to be another way out of this. I talk sometimes to people who are alcoholics. I'm not talking about whether drink is right or wrong, but they just love drink so much they can't not get drunk. And particularly, I talk to particularly maybe sometimes some young guys who go out after work with their friends and they get drunk every Friday night. And they say, ah, oh, I don't quite know how to stop it. And I say, well, that's easy. Don't go to the pub with your friends on Friday night. Go to a coffee shop because coffee is good. Go somewhere else with your mates to hang out. There's nothing wrong going somewhere to have, have some good quality time with your friends. And if, if, if the pub doesn't cause you problems and you're not getting drunk or whatever else, then maybe that's an appropriate place to spend some time with your friends from work. But if you find it does cause you always to fall into something where you lose your self-control and you act in an inappropriate and wrong way, then don't go. Something we need to learn. David struggled with that. If Absalom had remained alive, there was always going to be this tension, this, this rebellion within his kingdom. But he wanted Absalom alive. And Job has to show him that that's not how it should be. The next couple of chapters work through as David works his way back into the city. We don't have time to go into all of them. But as David works his way back into the city, he meets each of the people that he really left, met as he left the city. And he has to repair some of the damage that's been done by Absalom. And there's a lot of political intrigue in all of that. The only other thing I wanted to pull out, which was, again, on that last point about putting aside the things that cause you damage. As David's going back in, he meets the commander of Absalom's army. The smart thing for him to have done, this person is in rebellion against him, is to put him aside. But for political expediency, he welcomes him in and says, why don't you be on my side now? He brings back into his side, even though he hasn't learned the lesson with Absalom, he brings back in for the sake of achieving it himself that which has caused him problems in the past. And he says to Amasa, 
um, down in chapter 19. Look, you're part of my family. You're, you're my flesh and blood. You can become commander. Joab, even though he has saved me in this plot and he's the commander of my army in the past, so that you'll be welcome and so that you can bring all the people with you, you can now be my army and he doesn't have to be my army anymore. And you can see, he, because he does that, it, it further causes the possibility of rebellion. He welcomes in that thing which is dragging him away from what God has promised him. And that's just dumb. Uh, if you read it through, you'll find that Joab deals with this <laughs> a little bit sneakily. In those days, people had longer beards. Well, a master is sent out because this is other rebellion. You can go and read about that in chapter 20. But a master doesn't do the job he's supposed to. And he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Joab walks up to him and says, It's good to see. He grabs him by his beard and sticks his sword in his tummy, which is not very pretty. But again, Joab does what David ought to have done got rid of the issues that were going to drag him into rebellion. There's lots of other stories in there and I, I trust you read them. But let it be known this. These two applications I think we can get from this whole story. Number one, I don't know what promises of God you know. But there are a number that are there. God's promise to forgive. God's promise to give his Holy Spirit. God's promise to use us in the community for the world. God's promise to use our gifts. God's promise to bless our families. God's promise to give us everything that we need. And we go through life and we find that we don't always see this as we thought it would work out. What we learn from this passage is don't turn your back on God's promises. Hold on to them faithfully. As you keep looking to see what God is teaching you in the circumstances, knowing that these things are true because God keeps his word. Then we will find that God actually does achieve his purposes. It might not be the way we thought it would happen, but it will happen because God is faithful. And I know that all of you, I imagine all of you, are going to go through times when you don't understand what God's doing. You can't see how he can be doing good in your life with what's going on. Trust that he keeps his word. He's a faithful God. And you'll see as you go through those things that he will bring those things out. But be, be aware, like David had to be, when things are contrary, to ask the question, is God saying something different to me now? Is God showing me that I need to change some of my behaviour? And be prepared to do that if necessary. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. If you know there are those things in your life that you like, that take you away from honouring God, don't hold on to them. All that it will bring is constant pain in your life. If you know there's one area of your life where you always fall away from him, you are always showing a bad attitude towards people. You're always treating people with contempt or you're, you're sinning in a particular way or it takes you away from honouring God then put it aside. It's not worth it. The example I use, I probably used it here beforehand, is I remember back in grade 10, 10 or 11, I was chosen for the Queensland football team. The round ball football, not the 
oval football, real football, soccer team. And I went home excited out of my brain. I'm on the team. And they said, great, when's your first practice? He, I said, Sunday afternoon. He said, well, <laughs> I guess you're not on the team then. And he was very wise. You see, he understood, and it would have been true, that I wouldn't be able to attend church. I wouldn't be able to be involved in ministry. I wouldn't be able to follow God as closely as I had been being on the team because it would have taken all of my Sundays out. So he said, well, I guess you'll have to write back and say no thanks to you. And that was a very difficult thing for me to do. And I hated doing it. But if I look back, I can see that that would have pulled away my devotion to God. But I needed to love him more than that. Let me encourage you, if there's any of those things you know are pulling you away from God, put them aside. They're not worth it. They're just not worth it because he comes first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that each of us might know that you are faithful and true. The things that you have promised to help us in difficult times, to heal us, to forgive us, to bless us, to care for us, to guide us, to strengthen us, to provide us with a family, to encourage us. All of these things which we know are true, sometimes in the difficulties of life, we, for one reason or another, we doubt whether you are doing what you said you would. Help us to trust you, that even through those difficulties, to hold on the fact that you will, even if it's in a way we don't understand, you will do what you've promised for us. And that one day as we look back on it, we will see that you've been faithful through every circumstance, caring for us and loving us as we have needed at the time, in a way that is good for your kingdom, good for your people and good for us. Father, I pray you'll give us strength. Strength that as we go through life, to put aside those things which take our attention away from you. Some of them are good in their own right, but they become gods for us instead of you. Some of them are bad, but we hold them close because we like the badness. Help us to put them aside. Help us to hold you up as first in our life. David was good in the first, but struggled in the second. Provide us with people around us, I pray, who might help us, help us to live a life that is righteous and good for your name's sake. Father, I ask all of these things in the blessed name of our Saviour Jesus. Amen.